Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This is the uh, Ministry of Truth, and I'm Gordon Comstock, and... The book we're going to get into today, it really ought to be more widely available. It, uh, I don't know if it's suppressed, I would guess so, but it certainly, it's out of print, it's long, long gone, and, uh, but uh, Charles Wilcox brought it back and put it back on his site, and it's a, it's a book that every American with a brain that is probably the, the non-television watchers. Uh, every American with a brain should read this book. Um, you want to know what's wrong with the country? This guy tells you, and he told you back in the uh, mid-1800s. We're talking about Samuel Morse, his book entitled Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States. Now, if you go to Charles Wilcox's site, uh, ctwilcox.com, he's got this book up in PDF form. Uh, and that's about the only place you're going to be able to find this book anymore. So I hope you appreciate this uh, book as an audio book that I'm about to get into, because I'm going to read the sucker. And uh, it's going to tell you some things that you're not going to believe. And what I would advise you to do at that point, if you want to cast aside your willful ignorance, your cognitive dissonance, if you've got the guts, the integrity, go out and get Charles Wilcox's book, The Transformation of the Republic. You go to Charles' site, ctwilcox.com, or you can go to lulu.com, l-u-l-u.com, and you can buy Charles's book, The Transformation of the Republic. It's got this information by Samuel Morse in it, and it's got a whole lot of other stuff that will, you will not believe it, because uh, you will find there's stuff in that book that has not seen the light of day in 120 years, and you do not understand American history unless you know this stuff. Are there some other books that talk about this stuff? Yes, and they're also suppressed, and they're also obscure. Uh, but the best one I found is Charles Wilcox, his book, The Transformation of the Republic. It's $40. Uh, do you want your eyes to be open? Is it worth 40 bucks? Um uh, <laughs> I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it until I read it. Well, anyway, part of what Charles Wilcox gets into in The Transformation of the Republic is this long, out-of-print book by Samuel Morris that was published in the the uh, New York Observer. Um, wow. 1835? You've got to be kidding me. Samuel Morris, the inventor of the... The Telegraph, and uh, I'm sure some other things too. He was a very renowned American in the 1800s, and he sought. Um, well, uh, let me read a page out of uh, the Transformation of the Republic, and which will tell you about uh, what Samuel Morse, what got him into this investigation, and what um, 
where he was coming from. The first page of Chapter 3 of Charles Wilcox's book, The Transformation of the Republic. Owing to the combination of circumstances in Europe just referred to, the autocrats did not dare to wage open war on the government of the United States, since the warning of President James Monroe, as enunciated in the Monroe Doctrine. In 1828, an organization in Vienna was formed which was called the St. Leopold Foundation for the Furtherance of Catholic Missions in America. The plan was to operate under the mask of religion, which would ensure its safety from any governmental interference, and they hoped to accomplish by intrigue and innuendo what could not be performed by bullets and bayonets. Uh, the Habsburg family of Austria was the most powerful Roman Catholic ruling family in Europe, and consequently the cruelest, uh, most despotic, and reactionary. Professor Samuel F.B. Morse, the inventor of electric telegraphy, thought it his patriotic duty to investigate further the religious overtones of the Treaty of Vienna. I'm sorry, the Treaty of Verona. This was a man who used blunt logic and scientific reasoning to elucidate on a particular point, talking about Samuel Morse. He eventually wrote a book on his findings entitled Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States. Uh, okay, well, let's get into it. You're, you're not going to believe this, folks. This was warned about in 1835. Well, it's the same thing. Do you know about Wilcox's book? No. Probably not, right? Well, most people didn't know about uh, Morris's uh, warnings either, but they were out there and People knew about this stuff. Anyway, actually, it was a lot more common knowledge than it was today. Uh, you don't see this stuff in newspapers anymore. Oh, boy. Well, let's get into it. Foreign Conspiracy in the United States by Samuel Morse. Chapter 1. Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States. Does this heading seem singular? What, it will be said, is it? at all probable that any nation or a combination of nations can entertain designs against us, a people so peaceable and at the same time so distant, knowing the daily increasing resources of this nation in all the means of defense against foreign aggression, how absurd in the nations abroad to dream of a conquest on this soil. Let me nevertheless ask attention while I humbly offer my reasons for believing that a conspiracy exists, that its plan, its plans are already in operation, and that we are attacked in a vulnerable quarter which cannot be defended by our ships, our forts, or our armies. Who among us is not aware that a mighty struggle of opinion is, in our days, agitating all the nations of Europe, that there is a war going on between despotism on one side and liberty on the other? Footnote, the War of Opinions. Every account from Europe attests the correctness of the views here taken, more than a year since, of the political state of the civilized world. This war of opinions, or of categories, as Lafayette termed it, is in truth commenced, and Americans, if they will use but common observation, cannot but feel that a neglect to notice and provide 
against the consequences of that settled, systematic hostility to free institutions so strongly manifested by foreign powers, and which is daily assuming a more serious aspect, will inevitably result in mischief to the country, will surely be attended with anarchy if they wake not to the apprehension of the reality of this danger. Americans, you indeed sleep upon a mine. This is scarcely a figure of speech. You have excitable materials in the bosom of your society, which, skillfully put in action by artful demagogues, will subvert your present social system. You have a foreign interest, too, daily, hourly increasing ready to take advantage of every excitement, and which will shortly be beyond your control, or will be subdued only by blood. You have agents among you, men in the pay of those very foreign powers, whose every measure of foreign and domestic policy has now for its end and aim the destruction of liberty everywhere. To increase your peril, you have a press that will not apprise you of the dangers that threaten you. We can reach you with our warnings only through the religious journals. The daily, pre the daily press is blind, or asleep, or bribed, or afraid. Sounds like today, huh? At any rate, it is silent on this subject, and thus is throwing the weight of its influence on the side of your enemies. Foreign spies have clothed themselves in a religious dress, and so awestruck are our journalists at its sacred texture, or so unable or unwilling to discern the difference between the man and his mask, that they start away in fear, lest they should be called bigoted or intolerant or persecuting, what does it sound like today, if they should venture to lift up the consecrated cloak that hides a foreign foe. Americans, if you depend on your daily press, you rely on a broken reed. It fails you in your need. It dare not, no, it dare not attack popery. It dare not drag into the light the political enemies of your liberty, because they come in the name of religion. All despotic Europe is awake and active in plotting your downfall, and yet they let you sleep, and choose, and you choose not to be awake. A little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little more folding of the hands to sleep. And now, like a man whose house is on fire, dreaming of comfort and security, you will perhaps repel with passion and reproach the friendly hand that would wake you in season to escape with your life. Do you doubt whether Europe is in hostile array against liberty? Read of the movements and revolutions of foreign cabinets, as one or the other principle temporarily predominates. Read the views of the statesmen of Europe. A distinguished member of the Spanish Cortes Don Telesforo de Trueba, in a speech delivered before that body a few months since, says, The present war is not a war of succession, but of principle. Liberty and despotism are at issue. England, France, Belgium, Spain, and Portugal have ranged themselves under the banner of the former, but it is not necessary for me to name those powers who follow the standard of the latter. 
of course, Don Carlos and his government, he says, of Don Carlos and his government, he says, ignorance, hypocrisy, and fanaticism are his only counselors, whispering to him new modes of oppressing his people. Everything around is stamped with the marks of baseness and falsehood, while in his infernal region, desolation and death reign triumphant. A sanguinary priesthood is sacrificing human victims to the God of peace and love, men who wish to bring back the Dark Ages, the age of tyranny and ignorance and death. The foreign correspondent of the Evening Post, in a letter from Florence, Italy, published in that journal, December 27, 1834, has the following information directly from Tuscany. Hitherto, in the administration of the government, a disposition has been shown to let off political offenders as lightly as possible, but lately, however, something of the same jealousy of republicanism has shown itself, which has been manifested by the other absolute governments of Europe. A quarterly journal was suppressed a few months since on account of something which gave offense to Austria. This and several other acts of the Grand Duke have greatly diminished his personal popularity. The rulers of Italy appear to have come to an understanding that it is time to make an example of some of the disaffected. Now, this Austria is the same busy meddling government that is operating in this country. We scarcely read the name of Austria in a foreign journal or in letters from abroad, but in connection with some plan for extinguishing liberty. And yet we harbor her emissaries, promote their secret designs, contribute our money to swell their coffers, build for them their seminaries and convents, entrust our children to their instruction, court their favor, shield them from all attack, yes, even put ourselves under their protection. All, all this we do, and our native blood flows evenly in our veins. Spirit of 76, where dost thou sleep? And with what deep anxiety should Americans watch the vicissitudes of the conflict? Having long since achieved our own victory in the great strife between arbitrary power and freedom, having demonstrated by successful experiment before the world the safety, the happiness, the superior excellence of a republican government, a government proceeding from the people as the true source of power, enjoying in overflowing abundance the rich blessings of such a government, must we not regard with more than common interest the efforts of mighty nations to break away from the prejudices and habits and sophistical opinions of ages of darkness and struggling to attain the same glorious privileges of rational freedom? But there are other motives than that of curiosity or of mere sympathy with foreign trouble that should arouse our solicitude in the fearful crisis which has at length arrived, a crisis which the prophetic tongue of a great British statesman, Mr. Canning, long since foretold, the war of opinion, threatening the world with a more frightful sacrifice of human life than history in any of its blood-stained pages records happily separated by an ocean barrier from the great arena where the physical action of this bloody drama is to be performed, 
We are secure from the immediate physical effects of the strife, but we cannot remain unaffected by the result. Of European wars arising, arising from the craving of personal ambition, from thirst for national glory, from desire of territorial increase, or from other local causes, we might safely be ignorant both of cause and result. No armed bands of a conqueror flushed with victory could give us a moment's alarm. But in a war of opinions, in a war of principles, in which the very foundations of government are subverted, and the whole social fabric upturned, we cannot, if we would, be uninterested in the result. Principles are not bounded by geographical limits. Oceans present to them no barriers. All of principle that belongs to despotism throughout the world, whether in the iron systems of Russia and Austria, or the scarcely less civilized system of China, and all the and all of principle that belongs to pure American freedom in the United States, or in the mixed systems of Britain, France, and some other European states, are in this great contest arrayed in opposition. The triumph of the one or the other principle, whether in the field of battle, or in the secret councils of the cabinet, or the congress of ministers, or the open debate produces effects wherever society exists. The recent convulsions in Europe should not pass unheeded by Americans. The three days revolution of France, the reform in Britain on the side of liberty, the suppressed revolutions of Italy and Poland on the side of despotism, the yet doubtful victory of the two principles, now in contest in Portugal and Spain. These numbers were written in January and February 1834. The crooked diplomacy, the contradictory measures, the faithless promises of the despotic cabinets all show that the war of principles has indeed commenced, and that Europe is agitated to its very center with the anxieties of the contest. No open annual message reveals frankly to all the world the true internal condition of the oppressed nations of Europe. From the well-guarded walls of the secret council chamber of the imperial power, documents seldom escape to show us the strength of the opposing principle. Despotism glosses over all its oppressions. The people, the people are always happy under the paternal sway. They that, lead, that plead for liberty are always enemies of public order. Order reigns in Warsaw was the proclamation that told the world that despotism had triumphed over Poland. And none now may know the number of her sons of freedom still at large still unexiled to the mines of Siberia, yet it is great for Russia and Prussia and Austria have leagued anew against unconquerable Poland, and the agony of determination, the desperate resolution which the Russian autocrat has just uttered, tells the secret of the yet unvanquished spirit of Polish patriots. 
and at the same time discloses the plot of mighty efforts, of united efforts, of persevering efforts, utterly to extinguish liberty. As long as I live, says the emperor, I will oppose a will of iron in the progress of liberal opinions. The present generation is lost, and we must labor with zeal and earnestness to improve the spirit of that to come. It may require an hundred years. I am not unreasonable. I give you a whole age, but you must work without relaxation. This is language without ambiguity, bold, undisguised. It is the clear official disclosure of the determination of the Holy Alliance against liberty. It proclaims unextinguishable hatred, a will of iron. There is no compromise with liberty. A hundred years of efforts, unrelaxed if necessary, shall be put forth to crush it forever. Its very name must be blotted from the earth. What? And is there a holy alliance, a union of Christian princes, leagued, in quotes, leagued to extinguish the kindling sparks of liberty in Europe? And will they make no effort to quench the great altar, fires that blaze in their strength in the temples of this land of liberty? An oversight like this would seem to be too palpable for the wisdom of the despotic cabinets to commit. This conquest must be achieved, or liberty will never die in Europe. With declarations before us, thus officially put forth by despotism, of such exterminating hostility to liberty, is it not possible that an attack on us may be made from a quarter and in a shape little expected? Should we not at least look about us? Nations may be attacked and conquered, too, with other weapons than the sword. The diplomatic pen, as England can testify, has often wrested from her that liberty which her sword had won. We need not look, therefore, to the ports of Europe to see if fleets are gathering. We are safe enough from ships. Nor need we fear diplomacy, for we have, quote-unquote, entangling alliances with none. Where then shall we look? What shape would attack be likely to assume? Let the nature of the contest aid us in the inquiry. It is the war of opinion, the war of antagonist principles, the war of despotism against liberty. But how can this contest be carried on in this country? We have not the warring opinions to set. Uh, we have not the warring opinions to set in array against each other. One principle is certainly absent. We have no party in favor of despotism. This party is to be created. If then a scheme can be devised for sowing the seeds and rearing the plants, the plants of despotism. That is the scheme which would find favor with the Holy Alliance to subserve its designs against American liberty. It is asked, is it, is it asked, why should the Holy Alliance feel interested in the destruction of transatlantic liberty? I answer, the silent but powerful and increasing influence of our institutions on Europe is reason enough. 
The example alone of prosperity which we exhibit in such strong contrast to the enslaved, priest-ridden, tax-burdened despotisms of the old world is sufficient to keep these, those countries in perpetual agitation. How can it be otherwise? Will a sick man, long despairing of cure, learn that there is a remedy for him and not desire to procure it? Will one born to think a dungeon his natural home learn through his graded bars that man may be free and not struggle to obtain his liberty? And what do the people of Europe behold in this country? They witness the successful experiment of, of a free government, a government of the people without rulers de jure divino by divine right, having no hereditary privileged classes, a government exhibiting a good order and obedience to law, without an armed police and secret tribunals, a government out of debt. Oh, wow, has that ever changed? 1835. Huh? A people industrious, enterprising, thriving in all their interests, without monopolies. Wow, has that changed? A people religious, without an establishment, moral and honest, without the terrors of the confessional or the inquisition, the people not harmed by the uncontrolled liberty of the press, and freedom of opinion, a people that read what they please, that read what they please, and think and judge and act for themselves, a people enjoying the most unbounded security of person and property, among whom domestic conspiracies are unknown. Boy, has that changed where the poor and rich have equal justice. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. A people social and hospitable. Changed. Exerting all their energies in schemes of public and private benefit without control, without other control than mutual forbearance. A government so contrasted in all points with absolute governments must and does engage the intense solicitude both of the rulers and people of the old world. Every revolution that has occurred in Europe for the last half century has been in a greater or less degree the consequence of our own glorious revolution. The great political truths there promulgated to the world are the seed of the disorders and conspiracies and revolutions of Europe from the first French Revolution down to the present time, 1835. They are the throes of the internal life, breaking the bands of darkness with which superstition and despotism have hitherto bound the nations, struggling into the light of a new age. Can despotism know all this and not feel it necessary to do something to counteract the evil? Let us look around us. Is despotism doing anything in this country? It becomes us to be jealous. We have cause to expect an attack and that it will be of a kind suited to the character of the contest, the war of opinion. Yes, despotism is doing something. Austria is now acting in this country. That's the Holy Roman Empire, folks. She has de devised a grand scheme. She has organized a great plan for doing something here, which she, at least, deems important. She has her Jesuit missionaries traveling through the land. She has supplied them with money and has furnished a fountain for a regular supply. She had expended a year ago 
more than $74,000 in furtherance of her design. Footnote from the best authority, uh, December 1834, $100,000 had been received from Austria within two years. That's in 1834 money. These are not surmises, they are facts says Samuel Morse, some official documents giving the constitution and, doing, and doings of this foreign society have lately made their appearance in the New York Observer and have been copied extensively into other journals of the country, this society having ostensibly a religious object has been for nearly four years at work in the United States without attracting out of the religious world much attention to its operations. The great patron of this apparently religious scheme is no less a personage than the Emperor of Austria. The society is called the St. Leopold Foundation. It is organized in Austria. The field of its operations is these United States. It meets and forms its plans in Vienna. Prince Metternich has it under his watchful care. The Pope has given it his apostolic benediction, and his royal highness Ferdinand V, king of Hungary, and crown prince of the other hereditary states, has been most graciously pleased, prompted by a pity worthy of the exalted title of an apostolic king, to accept the office of protector of the Leopold Foundation. Now in the present state of the war of principles in Europe, is not a society formed avowedly to act upon this country, originating in the dominions of a despot and holding its secret councils in his capital, calculated to excite suspicion? Is it credible that a society got up under the auspices of the Austrian government, under the superintendence of its chief officers of state, supplying with funds, a numerous body of Jesuit emissaries who are organizing themselves in all our borders, actively passing and repassing between Europe and America. Is it credible, I say, that such a society has for its object purely a religious reform? Is it credible that the manufacturers of chains for binding liberty in Europe have suddenly become benevolently concerned only for the religious welfare of this Republican people? If this society be solely for the propagation of the Catholic faith, one would think that Rome, and not Vienna, should be its headquarters, that the Pope, not the Emperor of Austria, should be its grand patron. It must be allowed that this should be a subject of general and absorbing interest. If despotism has devised a scheme for operating against its antagonist principle in this country, the stronghold, the very citadel of freedom, it becomes us to look about us. It is high time that we awake to the apprehension of danger. I propose to show why, why I believe this ostensibly religious society covers other designs than religious. Okay, that was chapter one of Samuel Morse's book, The Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States. This is chapter two coming up here. And uh, in case uh, you haven't caught on, you probably have. This is pretty erudite language, folks, and this is pretty depressing. 
uh, for another reason. Um, this is uh, language that's over the head of the average Joe in America today by a mile and a half. Oh boy, um, and this just reminds me of how dumbed down we are in our society. Uh, I, I'm, I'm myself, I'm better read than the average Joe, and uh, most of this, I admit, is probably over my head. I, I'm getting it, but it's, it's, it's thick stuff. This is really erudite. And, um, boy, oh boy, it, sh it shows us how the schools, the godly schools in the, uh, the, this country used to actually educate people. So Samuel Morse's IQ could uh, no doubt run rings around most of us today. Well, let's try to grasp what he was saying. Nevertheless, we dumbed down idiot Americans of today. Let's, let's uh, redouble our efforts and, and listen and try to uh, overcome our ignorance, our uh, brainwashing. Chapter 2. The documents to which I have alluded exhibit so much of the correspondence of the St. Leopold Foundation as it was deemed advisable to publish, to publish in Vienna. They consist of letters and statements from Jesuits, bishops, and priests residing or itinerating in this country and whose resources are derived chiefly from the society in Austria. In documents thus prepared by the Jesuits, the most wary order of ecclesiastics, to draw forth more liberal supplies of money from abroad, and then submitted to the revision of the most cautious cabinet of Europe, that so much only may be published as will attain their object in the Austrian dominions, while all that might excite suspicion in the United States is concealed, we must expect to find great care to avoid any unnecessary exposure of covert political designs. The evidence, therefore, of a concerted political attack upon our institutions, which I conceive to lurk under the sudden and extraordinary zeal of Austria for the religious welfare of the United States, will not depend altogether on the information derived from these documents. Such an attack is what might be expected from the present political attitude of the European nations in regard to the principles of despotism and liberty from the powerful and unavoidable effect which our institutions exert in favor of the popular principle and also from the known political character of Austria. Who and what is Austria, the government that is so benevolently concerned for our religious welfare? Austria is one of the, that holy alliance of despotic governments, one of the quote-unquote union of Christian princes, leagued against the liberties of the people of Europe. Austria is one of the partitioners of Poland. This is in the early 1800s. The enslaver and despot of Italy. Her government is the most thorough military despotism in the world. She is the declared and consistent enemy of civil and religious liberty, of the freedom of the press, in short, of every great principle in those free institutions which it is our glory and privilege to inherit from our fathers. Austria, from the commencement of the Reformation to the present time, has been the bitter enemy of Protestantism. The famous Thirty Years' War, marked by every kind of brutal excess, was waged to 
extirpate those very principles of civil and religious liberty which lie at the foundation of our government and had Austria then triumphed, this republic would never have been founded. And what are the people of Austria? They are slaves, slaves in body and mind, whipped and disciplined by priests to have no opinion of their own and taught to consider their emperor, their god. They are the jest and byword of the northern Germans who never speak of Austrians but with a sneer and, quote, as slaves worthy the name of, unworthy the name of Germans, as slaves both mentally and physically, unquote. It's a quote from someone named Dwight. And who is Prince Metternich? whose letter of approval in the name of his master, the emperor, is among the documents. He is the master of his master, the arch-contriver of the plans for stifling liberty in Europe and throughout the world. Metternich, says Dwight in his travels in Germany, by his wonderful talent in exciting fear, has thus far controlled the cabinets of Europe and has exerted an influence over the destinies of nations, little, if any, inferior to that of Napoleon. He persuaded the Emperor of Austria and King of Prussia not to fulfill the promise they so solemnly made to their German subjects of giving them free constitutions. It was the influence of Metternich that prevented Alexander from assisting Greece in her struggles for liberty. He lent Austrian vessels to assist the Turks in the subjugation of the Greeks. Metternich crushed the liberties of Spain by inducing Louis XVIII, against his wishes, to send 100,000 men thither under the Duke de Angoulême to restore public order. Ah, yeah. When Sicily, Naples, and Genoa in 1820 to 1821, threw off the galling yoke of slavery, Metternich sent his 30,000 Austrian bayonets into Italy and reestablished despotism. And when, in 1831, as this writer can attest from personal observation, says Morse, goaded to desperation from the extortion and tyranny and bad faith of the papal government, the Italian patriots made a noble and successful effort to remedy their political evils by a revolution firm yet temperate, founded in the most tolerant principles, marked by no excess, and hailed by the legations with universal joy. Again did Metternich, this arch enemy of human happiness, let loose his myrmidons overwhelming the cities, dragging the patriots, Italy's first citizens, to the scaffold, or incarcerating them in the dungeons of Venice, filling whole provinces with mourning and bringing back upon the wretchedly oppressed population the midnight darkness which the dawn of liberty had begun to dispel. Prince Metternich, says Dwight, is regarded by the liberals of Europe as the greatest enemy of the human race who has lived for many ages. You rarely hear his name mentioned without exciting indignation, not only in the speaker, but in the auditors. Metternich has not been attacking men, but principles, and has done so much towards destroying on the continent those great political truths which nations have acquired through ages of effort and suffering. 
that there is reason to fear, should his system continue for half a century, liberty will forsake the continent to revisit it no more. The Saxons literally abhor this Prince Metternich. The German word Metternach means midnight. From the resemblance of the word to Metternich, as well as from his efforts to cover Europe with political darkness, the Saxons call him Prince Metternich, Prince Midnight. This is the government and the people which have all at once manifested so deep an interest in the spiritual condition of this heretic land. It is this nation of slaves, this remnant of the superstition and vassalage and degradation of the Dark Ages, from whom the light of the 19th century has been so carefully shut out that it fondly conceits its own darkness to be light, its death-like torpor to be order. It is this nation, not yet disenthralled from the chains of superstition, that is anxious to enlighten us in the United States in the principles of civil and religious liberty civil and religious liberty, words that may not be uttered in Austria, but at the risk of the dungeon, words that would carry such shrieks of dismay through the ranks of Prince Metternich's vassals, as the flash of a torch would bring forth from a cavern of owls. And can it be believed that such a government, the determined, consistent enemy of liberty, has no interested motive, no political design, no other than sentiments of Christian benevolence in her operations in this country? Is it likely that we, Protestant Republicans of the United States, have won the kind of regards of the Austrian government which has been persevering, which has been the persevering foe of the Reformation and its Republican fruits since the days of Luther? Has not Austria had vexation and anxiety and trouble enough for 50 years past in stopping up the open crevices of the European dungeon through which the unwelcome light of American liberty has so often broken? To be perfectly apprised of the hated source of that light? Yes, she cannot but now perceive that those Protestant principles which she has been incessantly engaged in endeavoring to suppress, driven by the words of persecution from Europe, have been taking root and strengthening in a congenial soil, and are here bearing their genuine fruits, liberty and happiness, and all their religious and social virtues. She, Austria, cannot view this Protestant nation growing to gigantic dimensions, a living proof of the truth and salutary influence of the principles she hates, without feeling that her own principles of darkness are in danger, and well may she be dismayed. Yes, Austria has turned her eyes towards us, and she loves us as the owl loves the sun. Can anyone doubt that she would extinguish every spark of liberty in this country if she had the power? Can anyone believe that she would make no attempt to abate an evil which daily threatens more and more the very existence of her throne? We may be told by some, perhaps, that her designs are purely of a religious character. Who can believe it? No one who has been in Austria. 
every intelligent man who has resided, even for a short time, in the Austrian dominions must have seen enough of the craft, both of the government and the priests, to make him suspicious of all their doings, and most so when they are most lavish of their professions of kindness and benevolence. But let us see what Austria avows as her design in the formation of the Leopold Foundation. Footnote. Some may be inclined to ask, is not this society a private association, merely chartered by the government, not differing materially from the religious societies in our own country? I answer that, says Morse, were the Leopold Foundation an association of private individuals, which it is not, yet got up in the Austrian dominions, it would still be a government affair. For we must not confound the practices of two governments so totally opposite in the administration of all their affairs as the Austrian and our own. From the happy separation of church and state in our country, <laughs> used to be till 501c, 501c3 kicked in, religious societies of whatever character have no connection with the government. Not anymore, folks. This was in 1835. They move in a separate sphere of action, yet in perfect harmony with it. Well, but in Austria, no plan, no society of any kind is private. The government interferes in everything, is all in all. Sounds like America today, huh? Even the persecuted Marincelli, confined in the dungeons of Spielberg for, a, for the crime of loving the political principles of this country, must wait a week at the risk of his life for a gracious permission from the paternal government to have his leg amputated. Yes, a private matter like this is a government affair. How much more than a grand society with the emperor its patron, the crowned prince and heir to the imperial throne, its protector, and Prince Metternich, and all the dignitaries of the empire, temporal and ecclesiastical, engaged in its operations? It is the Austrian government that is engaged in this plan of an ostensibly religious character. The first great object is to, quote, promote the greater activity of Catholic missions in America, unquote. She may be, and doubtless is, perfectly sincere in this design, for it is only necessary that she should succeed in her avowed object to have her utmost wishes accomplished. She need avow no other aim. If she gains this, she gains all. If she succeeds in fastening upon us the chains of papal bondage, she has a people as fit for any yoke she pleases to grace our necks withal. As any slaves over whom she now holds her despotic rod. She, Austria, has selected a fitting instrument for her purpose. Her armies can avail her nothing against us, for the ocean intervenes. Her diplomacy gives her no hold, for there are scarcely any political relations between us, between the U.S. and Austria. The only instrument by which she can gain the least influence in these states is that one which she precisely has chosen, its perfect fitness to accomplish any political design against the liberties of this country and of the world, I, Samuel Morse, shall next consider in chapter 3.
Okay, so that was chapter one and chapter two from Samuel Morris's 1835 book, Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States, although an erudite text, uh, and uh, which to our dumbed down brains of today, of course, is, is hard to get through. If you listen to it, maybe listen to it again if you have to, you can tell, you can see <laughs> Samuel Morris was warning us of the, the very things which we are now surrounded with today. If, hey, they who have eyes to see, let them see. Uh, we'll do another show on chapters three and four very soon. Uh, wake up, followers of Jesus Christ. You're being surrounded and your persecutors are sharpening their knives at this time. And it's the same old persecutors as they ever were, the same as it ever was before. But we've had about 100 years, 150 years of, uh, of a, a relaxation from them. And so we've grown stupid as a people. And um, we're, uh, we're ripe for the slaughter. Samuel Morris tried to warn us, 1835. This is the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. We're going to get into chapters 3 and 4 of Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States by Samuel Morse, the renowned inventor, American inventor from the 1800s, Samuel Morse. Uh, suppressed, out of print, long out of print book. Uh, but he was warning us in 1835 of uh, exactly what's happened today. And, oh gosh, I just heard uh, the most recent installment of the uh, Collins brothers, Paul and Philip Collins, on the uh, on the Grassy Knoll show. And doggone, if they weren't at it again, poo-pooing the idea that there could ever be one entity atop the New World Order. Of course, they have no scientific basis for that. They have no rational basis for that. It is... Um, it's their own belief system. <laughs> the fact is, we have pyramidal structures everywhere, and and I can concede their point that maybe at a future date, the Chinese might leap out and defy this Illuminati one-world uh, government system that's coming. But so what? Yes, thing entities can jump out and, and throw revolutions. That's what Orwell wrote about time and again. That's what we see through history, but there are also periods in history, probably most of the periods in history, where one entity reigns. And I'm telling you, if you read the book, The Transformation of the Republic, by Charles Wilcox, you will see that from the 1800s on, at least, the entity that was atop this conspiracy for world government could only have been uh, Papa Nero and his boys and his uh, 
scarlet and purple clad boys. Now, why are the Collins brothers afraid of this? They have such acute research skills, and and they're afraid to turn their research skills towards this avenue. They don't even countenance this. It doesn't fit their paradigm. Well, the fact is, folks, when somebody when somebody is uh, terribly brilliant, like the Collins brothers, it's been my observation that that they they really people like that they're almost always right because the few times they are wrong, they really beat themselves up over it more than the average guy. So it gets to to a point where a person like that, they really are afraid to be wrong because they deep down know that if, if they're, the next time they're found out to be wrong, and we all eventually are going to be wrong again, we're human, they know that they have to go through that process again of beating themselves up. And they were wrong again. Well, guess what? Collins Brothers, you're wrong the Vatican sits atop the Illuminati, and it's okay. You're human. You can be wrong, um, but you got to shake the cognitive dissonance. You have to have the Christian humility to be able to overcome your intellectual arrogance. I'm sorry. Okay, with that, enough of that. Let's get into foreign conspiracy against the liberties of the United States, Chapter 3. Before commencing the examination of the perfect fitness of the instrument, Catholic missions, to accomplish the political designs upon this country of Austria and her despotic allies, I would premise, says Samuel Morse, that I have nothing to do in these remarks with the purely religious character of the tenets of the Roman Catholic sect. They are not even in discussion. If any wish to resolve their doubts in the religious controversy, the acute pens of the polemic writers of the day will furnish them abundant means of deciding for themselves. But every religious sect has certain principles of government growing out of its particular religious belief, and which will be found to agree or disagree with the principles of any form of civil government. Uh, footnote to that. Opposite tendencies of popery and Protestantism. On the very threshold of the examination upon which I have here entered, and while searching among the records of the two sects of, for the political tendencies of the principles of popery and Protestantism, I was struck with the marked difference in extent which the two fields of inquiry legitimately offered for examination. The prime dogma of the Catholics that all of their church teaches is in is infallible, unchangeable, that what she has once taught as truth must now and forever be truth, lays open to our examination to a, a wide field. All and each of the precepts, laws, and acts of popery from the earliest ages to the present day may be legitimately quoted to show a polit the political character of that sect. Innovation, repeal, reform, or progress can find no admittance into the papal system without destroying the fundamental liberty on which the whole system rests. The whole of our faith, says Cardinal Pallavicini, an infallible authority, rests upon one indivisible article, namely the infallible authority of the Church. The moment, therefore, we give up any part whatever 
the whole falls. For what admits not of being divided must evidently stand entire or fall entire. Protestantism, on the contrary, is founded on the Bible. The Bible is the rallying point of all Protestant religious sects. Um, let me put in my two cents here. This was written by Samuel Morse in 1835, before, before of course, 50 years before the, um, the devilish revising committee that uh, brought out, brought, uh, resurrected the counterfeit Alexandrian Gnostic Bibles that we find in the NIV and the NASV and the, the RSV, etc. And so Samuel Morse would have no idea, would would not have have understood that um, that there actually would be more than one Bible, that there would be um, the bogus Bible and the real Bible, or he probably would have written it in here. Yes, Protestantism is founded on the Bible, but it's founded upon the real Bible. King James and the lineage of Bibles leading up to the King James. Continuing now. They all believe that God is its author, the Protestants do. The religious faith of each is bound to this one volume. But as the Bible prescribes no form of faith or doctrine or of church government in which all, in the exercise of the natural and revealed right of private judgment, can agree, each sect adopts that form most in accordance with what it believes to be the spirit of the doctrines which the Bible teaches. Hence, there is a diversity of views, according to the diversities of human constitution, according to the varying degrees of intellectual cultivation, or the peculiar wants and condition incident to the infinite variety of circumstances in which human society exists. Upon this freedom to choose according to the dictates of reason and conscience granted to man by his maker, denied by Roman Catholics and claimed by Protestants, is built the fabric of religious liberty. Difference of opinion being allowed, controversy of course ensues, and converts are to be claimed by uh, are to be made not by force of arms, but by force of truth, supported by appeals to reason and conscience. Zealous, according to the strength of his belief in the dogmas of his sect, the Protestant calls to his aid all the treasures of science. He believes that the divine author of the Bible, of truth in the Bible, is also the author of truth in nature. He knows that as truth is one, he that created all that forms the vast field of scientific research cannot contradict truth in scripture by truth in nature. The Protestant is therefore the consistent encourager of all learning, of all investigation. Every discovery in science, he feels, will uh, brings to religious truth fresh treasures, free inquiry and discussion, all intellectual activity legitimately belong to Protestantism. It is by thus opening wide the doors of knowledge and letting in the light of natural science upon what it believes to be the revealed truth of the Bible that Protestantism has been able gradually to bring out the principle of religious liberty and in its train the invaluable blessing of civil liberty. At the commencement of the Re Reformation, however, we are not to look for a full development of the free principles of Protestantism. We must expect to find many truths 
which to us who live in the noon of freedom are as clear as the sun. But they would be then obscured or entirely invisible in the popish darkness of the times. The slavish prohibitions, the deep-rooted heathen rites, are the arbitrary dogmas of popery. And the arbitrary dogmas of popery were then enforced by power, by ignorance and corruption, so that the struggle of free with despotic principles was attended. Through many generations, with constant vicissitude, no maxim or usage of popish intolerance that for a long time clung or still clings to any of the Protestant systems of Europe can be quoted against American Protestantism. Consequently, I am under no necessity of defending any despotic or intolerant practice which may be charged or proved upon foreign or ancient Protestantism, while every act or practice, past or present, of popish enactment is, papists themselves being judges, available to demonstrate the immutable character of popery. End of footnote. It is my design for briefly to consider some of the antagonist principles of the government of Austria and of the United States and compare them with the principles of government of the Catholic and Protestant sects. By this method, we shall be able to judge of their bearing on the permanency of our present civil institutions. Let us first present to view the fundamental principle of government, that principle which, according to its agreement with one or the other of the two opposite opinions that divide the world, decides entirely the character of the government in every part of the body politic. From whom is authority to govern derived? Austria and the United States will agree in answering from God. The opposition of opinion occurs in the answers to the next question. To whom on earth is this authority delegated? Austria answers to the emperor, who is the source of all authority. The emperor do ordain, etc. The United States answers to the people, in whom resides the sovereign power. We the people do ordain, establish, grant, etc. In one principle is without question or examination. The ruler is master, the people are slaves. In the other is recognized the supremacy of the people, the equality of rights and powers of the citizen, submission alone to laws emanating from themselves. The ruler is a public servant receiving wages from the people to perform services agreeable to their pleasure, amenable in all things to them, and holding office at their will. The ruler is servant and people are master. The fact and important nature of the differences in these antagonistic doctrines leading, as is perceived, to diametrically opposite results are all that is needful to state in a, in a in order to proceed at once to the inquiry, which position does the Catholic sect and the Protestant sects severally favor? The Pope, the supreme head of the Catholic Church, claims to be the vice-regent of God, supreme over all mortals, over all emperors, kings, princes, potentates, and people, king of kings and lord of lords, 
he styles himself the divinely appointed dispenser of spiritual and temporal punishments, armed with power to, dis to depose emperors and kings, and absolve subjects from their oath of allegiance. From him lies no appeal. He is responsible to no one on earth. He is judged of no one but God. But not to go back to former ages to prove the fact of the Pope's claiming divine right, let the present pontiff Gregory XVI testify. He claims and attempts the exercise of this plenitude of power and asserts his divine right. The document I quote is fresh from the Vatican, scarce four months old in 1835, a document in which the Pope interferes directly in the political affairs of Portugal against Don Pedro. How can there be unity in the body, says the Pope, when the members are not united to the head and do not obey it? And how can this union of obedience be maintained in a country where they drive from their seas the bishops legitimately instituted by him to whom it appertains to assign pastors to all vacant churches because the divine right grants to him alone the primacy of jurisdiction and the plenitude of power. The Catholic Catechism, now taught by Catholic priests to the Poles in all the schools of Poland and published by special order at Wilna, 1832, is very conclusive of the character of Catholic doctrine. The following questions and answers are propounded. Question 1. How is the authority of the emperor to be considered in reference to the spirit of Christianity? Answer. As proceeding immediately from God. Question 2. How is this substantiated by the nature of things? Answer. It is by the will of God that men live in society, hence the various relations which constitute society, which for its more complete security is divided into parts called nations, the government of which is entrusted to a prince, king, or emperor, or in other words, to a supreme ruler. We see then that as man exists in conformity to the will of God, society emanates from the same divine will, and more especially, the supreme power and authority of our Lord and Master, the Tsar. Question 3. What duties does religion teach us, the humble subjects of His Majesty, the Emperor of Russia, to practice towards Him? Answer. Worship, obedience, fidelity, the payment of taxes, service, love, and prayer, the whole being comprised in the words worship and fidelity. Question 4. Wherein does this worship consist and how should it be manifested? Answer. By the most unqualified reverence in words, gestures, demeanor, thoughts, and actions. What, question 5. What kind of obedience do we owe him? Answer. An entire passive and unbounded obedience in every point of view. Question 6. In what consists the fidelity we owe to the emperor? Answer. 
in executing his commands most rigorously, without examination, in performing the duties he requires from us, and in doing everything willingly without murmuring. Skips to question eight now. Is the service of his majesty, the emperor, obligatory upon us? Answer, absolutely so. We should, if required, sacrifice ourselves in compliance with his will, both in a civil and military capacity, and in whatever manner he deems expedient. Question 9. What benevolent sentiments are and love are due to the emperor? Answer, we should manifest our goodwill and affection according to our station, in endeavoring to promote the prosperity of our native land, Russia, not Poland, as well as that of the emperor, our father, and of his august family. Skips to question 13 now. Does religion forbid us to rebel and overthrow the government of the emperor? Answer, we are interdicted from doing so at all times and under any circumstances. So here we have the Romans 13 uh, surrendering crowd, all surrendering to evil crowd. Unlimited submission, right? Question 14. Independently of the worship we owe to the emperor, are we called upon to respect the public authorities emanating from him? Answer, yes. Because they emanate from him, represent him, and act as his substitute, so that the emperor is everywhere. Question, you see that? The emperor is everywhere. The, the government is God in this system, literally. Question 15. What motives have we to fulfill the duties above enumerated? Answer. The motives are twofold, some natural, others revealed. Question 16. What are the natural motives? Answer. Besides the motives adduced, there are the following. The emperor, being the head of the nation, the father of all his subjects who constitute one and the same country, is thereby alone worthy of reverence, gratitude, and obedience. For public welfare and individual security depend on submissiveness to his commands. Question 17. What are the supernatural revealed motives for this worship? Answer. The supernatural revealed motives are that the emperor is the vice-regent and minister of God to execute the divine commands, and consequently, disobedience to the emperor is identified with disobedience to God himself. Mm -hmm. That God will reward us in the world to come for the worship and obedience we render the emperor. Didn't Hitler say that? Didn't Ceausescu say that? Uh -huh. and punish us severely to all eternity should we disobey and neglect to worship him. Moreover, God commands us to love and obey from the inmost recesses of the heart, every authority. Yep, sure. And particularly the emperor, not from worldly considerations, but from apprehension of the final judgment. Again, the state is God in this system. The state is your Jesus Christ in this system. Question 19. What examples confirm this doctrine? Answer. The example of Jesus Christ himself, who lived and died in allegiance to the emperor of Rome. Are they kidding? Are they really kidding here? 
Wow, they're not kidding. Let me read that again. What examples confirm this doctrine? The example of Jesus Christ himself, who lived and died in allegiance to the emperor of Rome? Wow. What deceitful propaganda. And respectfully submitted to the judgment which condemned him to death. We have, moreover, the example of the apostles, who both loved and respected them. What? They suffered meekly in dungeons, conformably to the will of emperors, and did not revolt like malefactors and traitors. We must, therefore, in imitation of these examples, suffer and be silent. This is deceitful, slavish propaganda. These are lies. The apostles in the early church went to jail because they refused to take licit from the emperor. They refused to declare that it was the emperor who gave them the privilege to worship Jesus Christ. Wow. If the apostles were going to be uh, conforming to the will of Rome, they would have done what all the other religions did. All the other uh, pagan religions did at that time. They would have gave licit to Caesar, and they could have worshipped Jesus Christ all they wanted to, as long as they told Caesar, thank you, Caesar, for letting us worship Jesus Christ. That's what the church today in America is doing. Thank you, IRS. Thank you, state and corporation laws, for letting us worship Jesus Christ. But the early church didn't do that. The early church said, no, we worship Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. Period. And it just so happens that, that the if the government will <laughs> will grant Christians the right to worship as they see fit, that it just so happens that Jesus his uh, dictates to his church made them the most obedient servants to a a, a, a decent government, to a righteous government. Uh, Christians are the uh, the best possible servants you could ever want to have. You found that? Fine, you can see that. A really good illustration of that is in the history of the Waldenses, where the Pope, time and again, came upon the, uh, oh gosh, the Duke in the region, the, uh, the uh, royal ruler of the region of the Waldenses, who was a Catholic, but he had these uh, Protestants in, within his domain, and the Pope kept telling the, uh, him to go and slaughter them. And the Duke he really dragged his feet as much as he could on that because the Waldenses were his most uh, humble and obedient servants. He, <laughs> uh, and then they, well, you saw what happened. The Pope uh, eventually won over time and again, and the Duke had to go slaughter them because the Duke wasn't that strong of a believer. But uh, it, but he recognized the fact that the Waldenses were, were. Um, decent, humble people who were the best of his servants, but they did not let anything brook their, uh, their right to worship Jesus Christ, unlike the church today. And, but wow, unlike this question 19 here. Holy smokes. Let's get back to the Samuel Morris book. This is the slavish doctrine taught to the Catholics of Poland. The people, instead of having power or rights, are, according to this catechism, mere passive slaves, born for their masters, taught by a perversion of the threatenings of religion to obey without murmuring or questioning or examination the mandates of their human deity. 
fit to cringe and fawn and kiss the very feet of majesty, and deem themselves happy to be whipped, to be kicked, or to die in his service of the emperor. Is it necessary to say that there is not a Protestant sect in this country that holds such abject sentiments? or whose creed inculcates such barefaced idolatry of a human being. Protestantism, on the contrary, at its birth, while yet bound with many of the shackles of popery, attacked in its earliest lispings of freedoms this very doctrine of divine right. It was Luther, and by a singular coincidence of day two, on the 4th of July, who first, in a public disputation at Leipzig, with his popish antagonist, called in question the divine right of the Pope. Let us now examine, in contrast, other political rights, liberty of conscience, liberty of opinion, and liberty of the press. Austria and the, and the United States differ on these points as widely as on the fundamental question. Austria, Austria not only has the press in her own territory under censorship, but intermeddles to control the press in neighboring states on the principle of self-preservation. In Saxony, says Dwight, the press is fettered by Austria and Prussia, who allege this reason, that all the works published in Saxony, which are not on the proscribed list, are freely admitted into our dominions. For our happiness, therefore, and the stability of our thrones, it is necessary that the press should be fettered. As to liberty of opinion, political or religious, in Austria, no one dreams of the existence of such a thing. The dungeon is the summary mode of obtaining a most happy uniformity of opinion throughout all the imperial dominions. It is our glory, on the contrary, that all these rights are secured to us by our institutions, and freely enjoyed, not only without the least danger to the peace of the state, but from the very genius of our government, that they are esteemed among its most precious safeguards. What are the Catholic tenets on these points? Shall I go back some three or four hundred years and quote the pontifical law, which says, Article 9, quote, the Pope has the power to interpret Scripture and to teach as he pleases, and no person is allowed to teach in a different way, unquote. Or to the Fourth Council of Lateran in 1215, which decrees, quote, that all heretics, that is, all who have an opinion of their own, shall be delivered over to the civil magistrate to be burned, unquote. Or shall I refer to the Catholic Index Expurgatorius, to the list of forbidden books, to show how the press is still fettered? No, it is unnecessary to go farther than the present day. The reigning pontiff, Gregory XVI, shall again answer the question. He has most opportunely furnished us with the present sentiments of the Catholic Church on these very points. In his encyclical letter, dated September 1832, the Pope, lamenting the disorders and infidelity of the times, says... Quote, 
From this polluted fountain of indifference flows the, that absurd and erroneous doctrine, or rather raving in favor and defense of liberty of conscience, for which most pestilential error, the course is open to that entire and wild liberty of opinion which is everywhere attempting the overthrow of religious and civil institutions, and which the unblushing impudence of some has held forth as an advantage to religion, hence that pest of all others most to be dreaded in a state, unbridled liberty of opinion, licentiousness of speech, and a lust of novelty, which, according to the experience of all ages, portend the downfall of the most powerful and flourishing empires. Unquote. Quote, Hither tends that worst and never sufficiently to be execrated and detested liberty of the press, for the diffusion of all manner of writings, which some so loudly contend for and so actively promote, unquote. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.